I'm George Mason, host of Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. My guest today is the Reverend Michael Waters, a pastor in Dallas who is going to be talking with us about economic justice, about poverty in America and in Dallas, Texas, and how we can address it with our faith. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. Um, the intersection of the common good and a good God who drives us toward public well-being and human flourishing. We're glad to be joined today by Michael Waters, the Reverend Michael Waters, who is a pastor of the Joy Tabernacle African-American Episcopal Church, along with the historic Agape Temple uh, African-American Episcopal Church. He is the co-chair of Faith Forward Dallas also, uh, a leader in bringing together uh, people of different faiths, religious leaders who are organizing for the common good in Dallas, Texas. Michael, welcome to our program today. We're really um, glad to have you. Thank you. And Michael is also the author of this book, Stakes is High, uh, Faith, uh, Race, Faith, and Hope for America. Um, actually a line taken from a hip hop song, uh, Stakes is High. Michael, you uh, have uh, been in the news quite a bit in the past uh, year, uh, stretching back several years in, in part as uh, we uh, remember the shootings in Dallas in July of uh, 2015. But most recently, uh, you've been uh, out in public uh, calling for the removal of uh, Confederate monuments uh, and the changing of names of schools and things of that nature. And you were helpful in the successful uh, taking down of the Robert E. Lee monument at Lee Park and the subsequent renaming of the park. Uh, so that was a, a, a contentious matter in our city. Uh, some people thought suddenly it was contentious. And for many people, I think uh, it's been contentious under the under the radar for a long time. So for those who think this was a sudden reaction to the Charlottesville uh, rally, for instance, right. what would you say to them about the presence of these statues in Dallas? Well, there is a very vicious history in relationship to these monuments. Uh, we know that historically their numbers increased during times of terror. Uh, these were not built to honor the Civil War dead who were part of the Confederacy, but they were really about the reclamation of Southern spaces for white supremacy. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, as you look on many of the monuments, etched literally on the monument, you'll find words like white supremacy or white virtue. And this was a part of the, the counteraction to the Reconstruction era, the, the Freeman's Bureau moving out of the South and really uh, white individuals reclaiming this notion of, of the, the white supremacy in the South. Mm -hmm. And so it happens immediately you know, after the end of the Reconstruction and then returns again during the American Civil Rights Movement, uh, putting again a stake in the ground during that time of rapid change saying we will not be moved segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. forever. It's part of that Fort legacy, Wallace, right. Yes. And so mm -hmm. when you really understand the purpose of these 
monuments mm -hmm. and their placement in front of, of, of spaces of power, yes. in front of courthouses and in city squares and in front of city hall, you recognize that they were really a marker mm -hmm. to, to really inform uh, an entire people of their so-called place in society. Mm -hmm. And so for them to remain says much about how we value those people's descendants today. Yes. So there, there is always the claim among white Americans that this is simply a recognition of heritage, uh, an acknowledgement of history, and that to uh, take these down is to deny a period of history that was not, uh, uh, not all sinful and evil, but there were noble people who uh, fought for principles and these sorts of things of civilization. But heritage goes both ways, doesn't it? In other words, what, what do, do those symbolize in terms of heritage for black Americans? Well, in, in instance, they, they were racial propaganda. We know right. that, right? They, they told a story of America in the South that was a falsified truth, right? It was not true, it was a lie. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, so much damage continued to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a direct correlation between the raising up of these uh, monuments to white supremacy, as I believe they should be rightfully called, and the increased lynching uh, that happened all throughout America, really, but particularly in the Deep South, which at its height, there was a black man, woman, or child lynched every two days in America. Imagine if in America today, every two days there was a black person disappeared from their family only to be found hanging from their neck from the nearest tree. That's the reality. And so we have to really talk about history, uh, the brutal nature of it, mm -hmm. and recognize when there have been forces who've tried to cast a false vision on top of that real history. Now, I was, I was particularly blessed to study with a gentleman by the name of Glenn Linden as an undergraduate at SMU, one of the leading scholars of, of the Civil War. And he and I had a number of conversations together. And later on, when I served as founding director of the Civil Rights Pilgrimage, he came on as the faculty lead. And as we traveled throughout the Deep South, there were all these very interesting intersections between Civil War history and Civil Rights history. Mm -hmm. For instance, with Montgomery, the cradle of the Confederacy, the capital of the Confederacy, is the same space where only a block down Martin Luther King Jr.'s first pastor at the Dexter Avenue right. Baptist Church. It's right there in that mm -hmm. tension, right? right? So one was serving as a corrective, if you will, right. for the other. I, all this to say that this is a debate that really should not be a debate. Uh, if you know the history, if you embrace the history, you understand that these monuments should never have been erected in the first place. I, I'm uncomfortable with the word monuments to begin with, to be honest with you. I, I think monuments are things that we erect to call all of our citizens to aspire to live up to uh, those things being represented. Uh, these are better probably called memorials to begin with. That is to say, uh, they, they are figures that remember a certain history and they always need to be interpreted. Uh, but they don't necessarily need to be aspired to. Well, I think I, They're I, about I, I, past, yeah, yeah. not future. Well, I, I think a little bit differently. I think okay. a monument really does speak to what a community values. Yes. 
And I believe these Confederate monuments speak to what America values, which uh, is whiteness. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and, and making whiteness normative, making whiteness aspirational, right. making whiteness supreme. I think that's right. how they function. I think that's how they continue to function. But that's the very point of why it's necessary for them to come down. Exactly. All right. And, but it's not just that they come down. Uh, it's also that something be put in their place. That is to say, something that actually unites the community, that raises the memory of others that have been forgotten. Uh, because you, you mentioned lynching and, and the history of lynching in this country, uh, which um, many people might love Billie Holiday, uh, but they don't understand what strange fruit really is. Yes. It, it, it's a reference, of course, uh, to lynchings in the South. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and here in Dallas, we have a history of that as well. So I know that you're working not only to bring down these, uh, these monuments uh, to uh, white supremacy, but also to remember the history of people like uh, Alan Brooks, uh, who in 1910 was lynched right here in Dallas, Texas, yes. at the corner of Ackard, Yes. And Elm? Main. Mm -hmm. uh, Main. Uh -huh. Ackard and Main Street. Mm -hmm. Say more about that story and about why you think it's important that all Dallas not forget that, but actually remember it and recognize it in some public way. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a horrific story of a domestic worker who has served families off of Pearl Street for years mm -hmm. without incident, who a young white girl goes missing, mm -hmm. as is reported. And when they find her, they find her with him. Mm -hmm. Now notice that there's nothing in the story that they find them in any type of inappropriate act. Right. But the assumption is because she was missing and is found with him, there must have been something untoward happening. Mm -hmm. He's arrested, he's held, and on the day of his initial trial, a mob breaks in, tie a noose around his neck, pull him out of the second floor window. Red courthouse. Red courthouse. Downtown. He falls on his head. Historians debate whether that fall actually killed him or not. We don't know, maybe just knocked him unconscious. But he's dragged literally on the ground for half a mile. During the dragging, the noose breaks. They re-noose him, if you will, mm -hmm. drag him, and he's lynched then at the corner of Maine and Ackard before a crowd of several thousands. It's about estimates between five and eight thousand people mm. come to see this man as he is hung. His body is taken down. Now another part of the history is that the mob is so rabid in their desire to see black blood that they have to shut down the city because the mob then shifts its attention to uh, the railroad, to trains, and they're looking to pull off any black person from that train and lynch them as well. So it lets you know that there's something greater happening here. The reason this is important is that the picture of the lynching is made into a postcard wow. that is mailed all across the world as an image of Dallas. Right. And so really there's not been any other image that has gone as expansive across the world as an image of Dallas alone right. as was that postcard at that time. Right. And we need to reclaim, if you will, that space, yes. not only in memory of Alan Brooks and many others who've fallen, but to reclaim that space as a way we don't want to return to. It, it seems that in Dallas we have a way of wanting always to move on. Uh, the, the, the call to heal 
and to be a city for everyone though is at times a call that is necessary and that is to remember and reflect and this is part of our biblical religion isn't it Absolutely. i mean uh, we we can't be healed uh, we can't have a sense of forgiveness and reconciliation without a sense of confession and repentance and so there there is an important public sense of of this uh, vital need for us to face our history, uh, not so that we'll wallow in it, not so that we'll uh, simply uh, give recognition, but so that we, we will acknowledge that we are the heirs of this and, and, and we're going to determine that we won't live that way again. And one of my favorite quotes from Dr. King is that true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. Nice. And sometimes the tension serves as a, a, a navigator mm -hmm. towards the peace you ultimately seek. You have to allow that to guide you into a greater peace, a truer peace for all people. But it can't get there uh, accidentally. Mm -hmm. It has to be uh, steps taken intentionally to heal and to restore. Well, you mentioned Dr. King, and I think this is a good segue for us. And when we come back from the break, I'd like us to explore a little more of the unfinished legacy of Dr. King. Uh, as he began to move from uh, civil rights that was more about racial justice to economic rights and to uh, the, the war on poverty. And so uh, let's pick that up again when we come back from this break. And we're back with Michael Waters, Good God Conversations That Matter. Uh, Michael, we were talking before the break about uh, the fact that Dr. King was actually killed in Memphis, Tennessee at the very time when he was uh, there to mobilize people uh, for economic purposes, not just for racial justice, but uh, the sanitation workers there. Uh, and uh, that, was, uh, that was a new uh, element in his evolution, in his work, uh, because poverty, of course, has a racial root, but it is also something that everyone has to deal with. Uh, in your book, I noticed that uh, you talked about uh, the fact that there is a disproportionate experience of poverty in the black community. Uh, that while the black community is something like 13% uh, of the American population, uh, the truth is 70, uh, sorry, 27.4% of black people live in poverty in this nation. And over the course of the years 2010 to 2013, white families increased in median wealth from 138,000 to 141,000, and the median wealth of black families decreased from, get this, 16,000 in 2010 to 11,000. That's wealth, uh, not just income. We're talking about wealth accumulation. Right. It's an extraordinary disparity between white and black in America today. And so you have been uh, trying to lead Faith Forward Dallas to address some of these matters uh, in our state and local communities. And you've been uh, in conversation with and have brought the Reverend William Barber uh, to Dallas, who is helping in his moral movement uh, to, uh, uh, to, to seek to redress uh, the issues of poverty in America. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign that 
Dr. King started, uh, you are picking up again uh, in this work. Would you say a few words about the Poor People's Campaign? Well, I think it's essential for the future of this nation, and it's not just for black people. Uh, there is an economic assault upon all communities, in particular white Americans, white rural Americans, mm -hmm. who are suffering under uh, the weight of the economic crisis before them. Mm -hmm. And even Dr. King alluded to that as well. Dr. King said uh, in, in his book, um, Why We Can't Wait, basically that if white poor people ever really awoken to the fact, awake uh, or awakened to the fact uh, that they were being harmed uh, by the same economic policies as black people, then they could unite together and really change the world. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. King, before he died, he said that what good is it to have an opportunity to sit at a lunch counter, but you can't afford the hamburger? Right. And really that shifted this idea to economic justice as a part of the civil rights movement. And of course, he was failed by an assassin's bullet uh, before that work could really be pushed forward. Dr. Barber and others have been uh, uh, so inclined to pick up this mantle and to really advance it in what is now the 50th year anniversary of the King assassination. And individuals across the nation are seeing this as one of the key markers in the struggle today. Um, as I talked to, talked to Dr. Barber this past, sun, uh, past summer, as we were at a conference speaking uh, together, uh, I told him, I said, you can't begin a poor people's campaign and not come to Dallas. Because in so many ways, statistically, Dallas is the epicenter of poverty. Mm -hmm. And he agreed, and I was very grateful uh, that you and others were part of the work of bringing him here. And so many were inspired by his presence, mm -hmm. and I believe are motivated to be a part of the work going forward. So a good bit of this uh, moral movement that Dr. Barber talks about and the Poor People's Campaign is focused on public policy. Yes. Now, in, in much of the white community, the idea of focusing on public policy to address poverty is counterproductive because the idea is the less government you have, right. uh, the more people can flourish by education, hard work, um, entrepreneurship, uh, being involved in the private sector where wealth is built and through personal responsibility and activity and the like. Uh, how do you address people who make that argument uh, when uh, the idea of government policies that are taxpayer funded are directed toward a kind of economic leveling of the field, so to speak? What, what would you say about that? Well, the unique thing about that conversation is individuals only have an issue with public policy helping people when it's helping black people, right? <laughs> when you think about the New Deal, when you right. think about what we talked about in terms of uh, the loans that were given in the 1930s, we think about welfare today, which the majority of individuals on the welfare rolls are white individuals, particularly in, in right. rural communities, who benefit from these governmental funds. Right. There's just this notion, and it's really sinister, that if any other community other than white people have access to these policies or these financial supports, uh, that there's something wrong, mm -hmm. um, that they're not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. uh, poor people are some of the most hardest working people uh, I know, work mm -hmm. two, three, four jobs just to try to climb uh, to the, the poverty line. And so it, it's always interesting 
But that even goes to laws. There are studies, and it's even included in the book, there are studies that show that white communities favor laws that have a disproportionate negative effect upon minority communities. Right. And we've got to unearth those very uncomfortable truths to really pave and move forward in a, in a different way. Michael, how do you respond to the fact that um, when we talk like this, um, many white people hear that as, uh, as sort of code language for democratic partisan politics, right? Uh, we're going to have a poor people's campaign, and that means uh, we're, we're going to try to elect more Democrats uh, instead of Republicans. And so it's really uh, just language that is partisan. Uh, I, I think on the other side, there are a lot of code language things that uh, sound very Republican to, to people who are on the other side. But if, if we talk about these things in spiritual terms, and, and yet it touches on public policy, policy, somehow it becomes partisan politics. I think that the, you know, kind of reclaiming even the sacred writ, reclaiming uh, the Bible, uh, the canonized scripture as an instructive on building beloved community ah. would be helpful. And the idea of jubilee, uh -huh. of, of eradicating poverty in community. Right. This idea of Pentecost, and Pentecost is more, I think everyone is so captivated by this supernatural, mysterious experience of, of cloven tongues, and they fail to recognize that the true marker of Pentecost was that they shared everything in kind mm -hmm. and that they removed poverty from their midst. Right. And that when God is truly at work among you, you leave no person behind. Right. So we've had, a, we've had a focus on the scriptures, um, again, that I think have been less helpful to, to building the type of communities uh, that we need to have. And so I think the, the benefit of Dr. Barber and so many others is that they are drawing forth from the wealth of the prophetic uh, tradition within scripture and they are casting a new vision for how we can all live into that. It seems that one of the things happening in our political culture right now is that there is disillusionment with both parties uh, in the system. So it feels to me at least like there is an opening right now. Uh, an opportunity to say that, uh, you know, big money and partisan politics uh, don't know labels. They, they, they really have to do with institutional uh, kinds of ways of keeping certain people in power and keeping others out of it. And, and there's a rising up, I think, of people uh, looking for another alternative. And it seems that this biblical tradition you're talking about uh, that wants to uh, see the flourishing of all human beings and bring people together uh, in a new sense of community. Uh, rather than the individualism, the dog-eat-dog, -dog, uh, survival of the fittest kind of, of way, uh, the identity politics of my group versus your group, uh, there has to be a way to draw people together for the common good. Well, the, the language being used is the moral center, yes. right? Not the left, not the right, but the moral center to which we are all drawn. Right. This idea of fusion politics, fusion coalitions, mm -hmm. uh, a gathering of a multiplicity of parties and experiences mm -hmm. who are willing to collaborate and work side by side for the cause of justice, that it's in the center that the true change and, and even the revolution uh, will take place. You write in your book, I believe that Texas can become a great state. 
I believe it can become a state where all children are fed. I believe it can become a state where the sick are cared for. I believe it can become a state where laborers are paid fair wages, where affluenza is appropriately diagnosed as privilege, and where our diversity is embraced as our strength. However, to get there, we must finally come face to face, face to face with Texas racist palpitations. So uh, the hope for our state and for America is partly in facing these injustices and inequities that are deeply embedded in all of this. And it seems to me that what you're trying to do is uh, to, to help us to see them and to be honest about them so that we uh, actually will address them instead of just coding over them and trying to move on. The sin of segregation is that you don't see one another. Right. You don't see each other as human. You don't see uh, the divinity on each inside of each other. Mm -hmm. You don't see the similarities in experience that at the end of the day, all people want the same thing. They want to be loved, they want to love, and they want to be cared for. They want to be able to be sustained in life. And so much of our city, so much of our world continues to be segregated in a way where we don't see each other or see one another as a, an essential part of each other's lives. Uh, again, I referenced Dr. King so much, but I think his words continue to provide great value for our struggle today. And he says it's important to recognize that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere because we are woven together in this inescapable network, network of mutuality. mutuality. What impacts one impacts us all. So the more we begin to remove these unnecessary barriers and really see the oneness of humanity, the more we can be healed and go forth to build a better day. I think often people think about prophets as people who simply speak about what God plans to do in the future. And they fail to see this important point that you're talking about. And that is that the real definition of a prophet is one who sees the truth in the moment, who recognizes what is happening in the world and speaks of it. Seeing and speaking, seeing and hearing from God what is actually going on for the sake of what might happen uh, in producing the vision for God of God for the world. Well, that's my hope for this book, and very humbly, it was just named the 2018 Wilbur Award winner for nonfiction. But the whole point is to uplift the idea that the stakes really are high yes. for all of us, Wonderful. and that we must take this moment to serve as a corrective to that history. It's gonna take courage, Mm -hmm. But persons have exhibited courage before us, not only in the scriptures, but even in recent history. And so there are footsteps in which we can follow. Well, we'll close with this uh, quotation from, as you call him, the late 20th century urban prophet Tupac Shakur, who said, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or change the world but I guarantee that I will spark the brain that will change the world. Indeed, that's our hope. You are hope uh, for sparking our brains and for God doing some important work of change in our communities because of it. Thank you for being here, Michael. It's a, an honor to have you on our program today. It's an honor to share with you, and I want to also thank you for the tremendous work that you do, not only within Dallas, but across the nation. It's an honor to call you friend and to serve as a co-laborer with you in acts of peace and justice. Wonderful. Well, Michael uh, is a real prophetic minister 
uh, of the gospel of, of Christ in our community and throughout the country. And uh, Michael has written a book called Stakes is High. Uh, the subtitle is Race, Faith, and Hope for America. And it seems that uh, here in Dallas, at least, every time uh, questions of race or social justice are involved, Michael, you are always ready to be there to show up, to speak up, and to help uh, lead for the cause of justice, and not just for justice to be done, but for peace to be made through justice. Uh, Stakes is High uh, is a compilation of a number of your writings that you brought together uh, over the past couple of years. And it comes, interestingly, uh, from the title of a song, a hip-hop song by De La Soul, uh, in which uh, he talks about uh, the importance of uh, the black experience uh, in America today. And I'll just uh, quote a couple of lines from it, if I may. Uh, he says, let me tell you what it's all about a skin not considered equal, a meteor has more right than my people. Neighborhoods are now hoods cause nobody's neighbors, just animals surviving with that animal behavior. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the interaction for you between hip hop uh, as a musical genre, its lyrics, its culture and all of that, and your call as a minister of the gospel. How do those two things come together for you? Well, I'm a part of the hip-hop generation, and the hip-hop generation is shaped and formed by hip-hop culture. Mm -hmm. uh, the music, uh, the visual images, uh, the fashion, even the worldview, and the theology. Mm -hmm. And as someone who came of age uh, really during uh, the, the golden era of hip-hop, mm -hmm. hip-hop became more than just music on the radio or videos on the television screen, but really helped to shape and give voice uh, to the experiences that so many of us were having and continue to have today. Uh, Chuck D from Public Enemy once said that hip hop was a CNN of the hood. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I believe that's true, that there were some things happening to us and within our communities that were not as widely known within mainstream. And so you had these urban prophets, if you will, mm -hmm. who were speaking about racial politics, who were speaking about mass incarceration, who were speaking about the war on drugs and how it was impacting urban communities mm -hmm. uh, in, in such a way that ultimately the world had to take notice. Right. Throughout the book, Stakes is High, and in your ministry here in Dallas, we hear you talk about how much of American culture is racialized, sure. uh, about um, the challenge of being black in America mm -hmm. and uh, how, uh, how difficult it is for white Americans to see that and recognize it. Uh, when white Americans hear someone say, everything is racialized, uh, they might hear that as, uh, why does it have to be? Sure. You know, wh why can't we get beyond racialization of every issue that comes up. Um, but you have a different take on that. Well, that's because, I mean, when you consider the infrastructure of America, the American enterprise, mm -hmm. it is wholly built upon these notions of race. That's really what gives shape to our nation and to our communities, even our city. Uh, one of the things that I've recently been getting into more and more is researching the redlining maps 
of major cities, particularly as we've been touring uh, with the book. Mm -hmm. In every city that I've gone to and put on the screen uh, the redlining map of that city, uh, there are two assumptions that I can make right away, and I ask the audience to confirm it, and 100% and of the time they confirm it. I said, where you see the red lines on this map, one of two things are happening. One, this is either still the space where poverty is most rampant within your community and has grown off from that, or it is the space where gentrification is happening mm -hmm. most rapidly. Mm -hmm. And every single city that I've gone to, most recently Seattle and Charlotte, to, to, uh, to a T, they've said this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so our, our neighborhoods and, and the communities and the realities that are being faced is really about intentionality in terms of who would be included and who would be excluded in the American enterprise. And so it, it, it's something we have to talk about. Let's talk about redlining a little more. Mm -hmm. I think that's a phrase people hear, but sure. not everyone knows exactly what's meant by redlining. Right. You want to say a word about that? Sure. Well, in the 1930s, as we're going through the Great Depression, the uh, United States has this plan, basically, to make sure that white families do not lose their homes to foreclosure. Mm -hmm. And so they began uh, all these acts to provide resources and finances through the banking institutions primarily, not just to white families, but really to uh, white families from a kind of Western European uh, Protestant background to make sure that they remain in their homes. And so they, they literally map out on major cities uh, color-coded areas uh, that would be more favorable for investment. So, for instance, if you lived in an area that was colored in with blue, you could receive 100% of a home loan, you could receive a business loan, and that would provide economic thrust. Mm -hmm. If you were in a green area, for instance, um, which usually were the less desirable whites, okay, that's going to be Jews, that's going to be uh, those from an Eastern European background, you might get 80% of the loan. You won't get 100% funded, but you get 80%, still decent, okay? Mm -hmm in order to provide economic thrust. If you were in, say, uh, a yellow area, that's going to be the most diverse area there. That's going to be the most impoverished whites. It's going to be Latinos, blacks, Asians in that area, uh, upperly mobile, if you will, blacks, Asians, and the, and the like. And you can receive maybe 50% of a loan. But if you were in the red areas, the, the, the neighborhoods colored in red, you could not receive any home loan. You could not receive any assistance with business. Mm -hmm. And so basically, uh, through an act of a U.S. government, in collaboration with the banks, you are ensuring that generations upon generations right. are, are living in poverty because home ownership is one of the you know, initial assets for wealth building. And so even for a city like um, uh, Dallas today, we lead the nation in single household rental properties. Right. But we also lead the nation, have been high in the nation in terms of childhood poverty, and we lead the nation in concentrated areas of poverty. Right. And so you have to see that, that, that the landscape of Dallas and so many major cities was crafted out of this racialized policy right. that continues to impact us today. And it's, it's really difficult, I think, for many people today to recognize what really happened in the 1930s with this because we, we know such a thing could never be accepted today. In other words, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have people sitting down around a table today saying, let's, let's, let, let's look at neighborhoods and be very deliberate about color coding what's possible for who can live where and who can get, I mean, that would be outrageous in our minds today. And yet, and yet, 
we are critical to some extent of those who live in the, these neighborhoods that are legacies of these very policies, as if why, why is your neighborhood uh, not um, generating wealth and positive education and why is it filled with crime and these sorts of things. So it, it, it sort of feeds on itself, doesn't it? We, we, we don't accept responsibility for the legacy of how it happened, but then we blame actually the, the neighbors who aren't succeeding in those places. And here's a, the, the really great challenge, is mm -hmm. that now, 50 years after the Kenner Report, we're recognizing that many of the civil rights acts, mm -hmm. many of the initiatives of the civil rights movement have either been stunted or reversed. Yes. And uh, Associated Press, just two weeks ago, confirmed a study of over 31 million home loans and identified that redlining as a practice mm -hmm. is continuing in America today. Okay. And so it's so important not just to see this as something that happened in the past and, and, and leave it in the 1930s. This is something that has been affirmed to be happening today and it's something we must address. So. When we come back from the break, I'd like for us to talk about how you as a pastor and as a Christian view these things, not simply in terms of our culture and political uh, life, but as uh, part of a biblical tradition and a Christian prophetic tradition. Uh, what's the implication of this for you as a human being and for all of us that's rooted in our vision of God and our understanding of what the world is intended to look like. So thanks for the beginning of this. We'll be right back and continue. Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square is a broad and diverse coalition of Dallas's faith leaders dedicated to service, hope, and a shared vision for North Texas. Faith Forward Dallas creates and supports a community of respect and compassion for all. Sharing in the mission of the Thanksgiving Foundation to heal divisions and enhance mutual understanding. We're back with Michael Waters, Reverend Michael Waters, pastor here in Dallas and a, civics, a civil rights leader in Dallas as well. Michael, we were talking about the connection between uh, your work prophetically in the community and your work behind the pulpit as well. The connection between your calling as a Christian minister uh, and the work you do outside the church as the church. Uh, Say something about that connection for you. What drives you? What motivates your vision of the world? I think there's two things that link together in my experience. Uh, one is my family. I come from a legacy of service. Mm -hmm. um, fifth generation ordained minister for those who were not in ordained ministry. Not only did they serve the church, mm -hmm. uh, but they served in education mm -hmm. uh, from uh, professors in college to those who served in elementary school uh, principals and the like, mm -hmm. uh, individuals who were engaged in business but had a idea of community building through business, mm -hmm. and even those who were activists, those who marched, those who worked in the public realm. Mm -hmm. And that has been a gift, that has been uh, an inheritance, I believe, passed down uh, through our family, this idea that life is best lived in service to others. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I embrace and I hope that I'm just a part of the ongoing chapter Good. in the narrative of our family. The next part is just our rooting within the AME Church. Uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church is the oldest 
historically black denomination in the Western Hemisphere. And it was really the beginning of the civil rights movement in America. Mm -hmm. When Richard Allen and others left the St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia uh, to, to really begin a, a new church, it was because they were being treated as second-class citizens mm -hmm. within the church. Mm -hmm. They were not black separatists, but they were one who wanted to affirm their humanity in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And so they began uh, this movement, really, uh, that has birthed such leaders as Rosa Parks and others as part of that continuum of, of faith and justice. And so my connections denominationally uh, with that legacy and understanding that work, even to Brown Chapel Amy Church in Selma, Alabama, and the work there, uh, and my family, those things come together to really guide and push my understanding of, of our call to serve and to work in the world to bring about peace and justice. You know, when I reflect upon my own sense of call, it was initially a call that I think was rooted in my commitment to Jesus Christ uh, and the gospel of salvation. Uh, but initially it was more about wanting to be people to have a personal experience mm -hmm. of their faith and a confident assurance of what would happen when they die. Mm. Um, but over the course of years, and the more you wrestle with the actual biblical text and understand the history of, of the faith, uh, both the faith that comes to us from the story of Israel and in the early church, it becomes so much clearer that God is coming to us and wants to bring uh, heaven to earth more than just deliver some people from earth to heaven. Absolutely. Uh, that our faith is about, uh, it, it, it's rooted in the story of Israel, in fact, that has uh, those who are marginalized and oppressed mm -hmm. uh, by other human beings being heard in their cries and being delivered for freedom's sake. And then even in the New Testament where you have this recognition uh, that one group, uh, those Jews who believed in Jesus, had to sort of give way uh, of privilege, in a sense, to the Gentiles and recognize that all the barriers of distinguishing between people, um, Jews from Gentiles, males from females, uh, 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 slaves from free, all of these barriers had to fall. And it, it really changes your view, doesn't it, of, of what is our work about? Uh, that, that somehow this, this work is a, a prophetic work of, of God wanting to see that we can look at each other and in all of our differences, see the humanity uh, of each person being a child of God and flourishing. You know, these things are, are hidden in plain sight. I mean, it's, it's Jesus saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes. It is the prayer taught to all of us, yes. thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is the names of God as Emmanuel, God who is with us. Yes. It is the Johannine gospel text right. that tells us that the Christ came and tabernacled among us, yes. right? There is this intimacy in relationship with God and with each other. It's Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane right. uh, that you would be one together right. as I am one with God in heaven. And that's the urgency of this moment. It's not this escapism. It's it's not this uh, race to heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a recognition that we begin the work of eternity while rooted in time. Wonderful. And that part of our work is to bring about healing and restoration today. I think it's always important 
to think about Jesus's inaugural text and the yes. in the his inaugural message in in the Lucan gospel. He reaches back forth the prophetic text of Isaiah and says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, yes. to be connected yes. uh, in intimate forms right. uh, with with those who are vulnerable, mm -hmm. and recognizing that that is the truest testament." Of our of our Christian call, Wonderful. and so if we are really fulfilling God's work through Christ in the world, uh, we cannot do that separate from the persons who are most vulnerable in the world. I think that you maybe uh, sprang upon the public scene for many people uh, in July of uh, 2015 when the shootings took place in Dallas of police officers, and as uh, co-chair of Faith Forward Dallas. You had already been at work uh, with uh, Rabbi Nancy Kasten and uh, Imam Omar Suleiman, and you all were able, because you had been talking to each other, to step into that public s sphere and, and to be leading in prayers and, uh, and words of unity and comfort to the city. Uh, but uh, that tragic event that took place in Dallas, uh, it, it, was, it was not outside of your personal experience. You didn't just come along afterward, you were actually there. Uh, tell us what brought about the march and the rally that then turned tragic that day. Absolutely. Well, un unfortunately, uh, we had been meeting for rallies and for for marches because of the number of individuals who were very publicly killed mm -hmm. uh, in encounters with police. And so this has been going on for a few years prior to uh, July of 2015. Mm -hmm. We were there particularly on that night, July 7th, because of the harrowing week we had experienced in witnessing the brutal deaths of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and mm -hmm. Philando Castile up north. Right. And those images uh, arrested us, yes. uh, uh, tormented us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I was really heading out of town for a conference and I received a call from those who were organizing and said, you know, if you would, we need you to come and, and share a word. And, you know, honestly, I, I thought that, you know, we'll, we'll be a few persons gathering. It was after Alton Sterling had died. Probably won't be a large group. We'll share some words and then, you know, we'll go back to our organizing at a later time. Well, before then, the march happened, the images of Philando Castile came. And what was anticipated initially to be a very small group swelled to become much larger. Mm -hmm. And the energy present there was mm -hmm. one of great sorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, there was anger, but there was just a heaviness in that moment. And um, I was invited to speak and I shared some words. And afterwards, uh, the organizer said, we need to march the people. And I understand that the people mm -hmm. were there. It was a, it was a very positive uh, presence there. Mm -hmm. People were invited to get involved in movement, to join in organizations, to donate their support in other areas. The police said, we will march you, we will support the march. And there was an immediate collaboration. A lot of people don't know this from July That, that was a remarkable thing, yeah, actually, wasn't it? there was an immediate collaboration right. between 
uh, the organizers and the police mm -hmm. to ensure everyone was safe. The police said, there's too many of you to just march on mm -hmm. the sidewalk. We'll move you into the street. Mm -hmm. The police were phenomenal in pausing the march to make sure the intersections were clear. Mm -hmm. And we went to the Red Courthouse and there, I guess the preacher and me, recognized that we had not had a moment of silence, mm -hmm. a moment of prayer uh, during our time together. And so I invited the crowd to have that moment of time to reflect and to pray. And then it kind of offered a benediction and with the instruction of police officers, disperse individuals. And it's literally as individuals were on their way home uh, that the gunfire begins. Yeah. And uh, it was chaos. Right. Um, and I also want to make this statement because it's very important. Our, our gathering was multiracial, mm -hmm. multi-ethnic, mm -hmm. uh, multi-faith, mm -hmm. multi-generational. Yes. There were individuals with babies in strollers there. Mm -hmm. And so many times that part of the narrative is, is cut out mm -hmm. that as these bullets were raining down, of course on police, but we didn't know it at the time. Individuals were grabbing children and drawing them close mm -hmm. and, and covering spouses and, and mm -hmm. trying to help elderly to, to make it uh, wow. to the side. And so this was really an attack on everyone, yes. even as the police were targeted. Right. And it was not a reflection of the spirit of those who had gathered that evening. So in the immediate aftermath, there were uh, tremendous gatherings, both at Thanksgiving Square and then uh, at uh, the Meyerson. Uh, was it the Meyerson? Yes, I, I, I think mm -hmm. when uh, Presidents Bush and uh, Obama yes. uh, were there, and uh, there, there was a, you know, an outpouring of attempt to bring people together and of goodwill and healing and prayer and the like. We also saw, though, I think. Uh, the impact of what happens when law enforcement is targeted uh, in this way. Uh, it's, it's interesting how that brings the community together, and yet, you know, when, um, uh, when Michael Brown is shot down, and uh, when um, Alton Sterling and Philando Castro and Eric Garner and uh, the, the um, uh, the pastor and eight others at uh, Mother Emanuel yes. are shot. There isn't the same level of, uh, of, of community being brought together. And I, I noticed that um, you know, there, this, is, this is what got everybody's attention more or less to say, all right, we need to come together now. But it, it's interesting to me that, um, uh, that in, in the immediate aftermath, I began to see signs being put up in the front yards of people in my neighborhood, back the blue, right. you know. Um, and, and, and you want to back the blue too, uh, but I've often thought, you know, if we, if we really want to do this right, we back the blue and Black Lives Matter should be right next to it Absolutely. because both of those things are true. I think you say something interesting in your book here. Mine is not an indictment of all police officers. There are many men and women who put their lives on the line for the public good each day. Some I have been blessed to call mentor or friend. Many officers themselves have lost their lives. I honor their memories and ultimate sacrifice, even as I offer gratitude for those who continue to work with great integrity to keep us safe. But then you go on to say there is a radically motivated culture of fear that overassigns threat to blacks, especially but not exclusively to black males, even when no justifiable threat is present. So the challenge here is really to be able to do 
both things at once, isn't it? Uh, to be able to say that uh, we want to be safe in our communities, but we also want to, to see concrete demonstrations of respect uh, for black Americans too. Uh, and so your work is not just an advocacy for one group of people, but it is for the whole community. And so the challenge is that as we mourn the deaths of these officers, mm -hmm. We're very sensitive to the deaths of individuals within our own communities. Right. And I'm going to say this is because I know we often speak of the Michael Browns and the Philando Castiles, the Alton Sterlings, because those are the ones who have risen, risen to the national consciousness. Mm -hmm. Very rarely do we talk about the Santos Rodriguez, the yes. James Harrisons, Good. the Fred Bradford Juniors, yes. the Jordan Edwards, right. those who are closer into Dallas and North Texas. And so I have a relationship with both. I'm, I, I have received police officers. I've been invited to pray in their gatherings. I've been a part of, of collaborating on safe community programs. At the same time, I've received uh, the family members of, of those whose lives have been taken in, in these encounters with police who are still fighting for justice and justice has not come. And the question is, how do you navigate both spaces? Right. And I, I don't believe the fight is mutually exclusive Good. because at the end of the day, it's all about the sacredness of human life. There it is. And mm -hmm. if you really hold human life sacred, all lives matter, but all lives can't matter until black lives matter as well. Yes. And we recognize that that's not happening. And so we have to show, we have to shine a light on black lives, particularly those that are treated as expendable mm -hmm. and recognize that until we lift up the value, the sacredness, the divinity, even within black life as we do in other lives, then we truly cannot celebrate the whole of life in America. We've got to do it, and it's hard work, uh, but, but the, the blessing, if you will, of the anniversary of July 7th was that because of our work as Faith Forward and, and what we've attempted to do, we were able to center the pain of both communities side by side. We had police officers standing beside the family of Jordan Edwards. Mm -hmm. And we lifted up that pain together and challenged our community to address it both. The, the officers, which is, which is amazing, a lot of people don't know this, uh, but the officers invited myself and Imam Omar to speak at the police memorial Beautiful. on the anniversary of July 7th. And there, we called the names, not only of the five officers fallen, but those who have been failed to police brutality, because we've got to hold them together, even in tension together, in order to work for a better day. Well, Michael, thank you for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure uh, to have this conversation, and I hope uh, many people uh, are helped and uh, encouraged by it. Thank you for your work for peace and justice in our community. Thank you. God bless you. Bless you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location production facilities. Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more, think less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. 
Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons. Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square is a broad and diverse coalition of Dallas's faith leaders dedicated to service, hope, and a shared vision for North Texas. Faith Forward Dallas creates and supports a community of respect and compassion for all. Sharing in the mission of the Thanksgiving Foundation to heal divisions and enhance mutual understanding. 